Welcome to the Cross Lane Podcast, a community committed to bringing people to Jesus. So let's, uh, we start a new series today. It's called Anvil. I used to hear my dad use this expression, that boy could tear up an anvil, right? Like anvil growing up, that's one of those things you know it's tough. It's, it's hard to break an anvil. And so that's where we're going for the next three weeks in this series. And as I get into the message today, I think it's going to become pretty clear. I'm just going to tell you, you may want to reach over and grab your seatbelt and strap it on, okay? Because uh, we're, we're going to get with it this morning. It's gonna, we're going to take a turn. You're going to go, man, what did he read on vacation? Um, nothing like what I'm going to preach, but this is overdue. This is something we've needed to talk about for a season, and I, we'll see as we get into it. I want to start, though. I want to show you a picture. That is my first car, okay? That is a 1975 Gremlin X with a straight six. I'm here to tell you, I'm, I'm, I'm going to make a statement. I'm tired of this car being disrespected in the movies and in your Facebook posts, all right? Tired of it. Um, no, the truth of the matter is, when I was 16 years old, my dad decided that it, uh, that it would be good for my mom and I to share a car. And this is the one he bought. This is what I got. This is what I drove to high school, and all the kids made fun of me. I mean, I've just had, I should seek counseling probably for all the things that got said about my car. But I love this little car. Um, I took it off to Bible college with me. It just, I, I, just, I see that and I get nostalgic. But anyway, um, there was a point where not long after I'd started driving, I wanted to go. I wanted to drive an hour outside of town uh, to a little town south of in Kentucky where I lived. And I wanted to go see my, my grandparents. And I knew the way. It wasn't that I didn't know the way. It wasn't that I didn't know how to get on the interstate or any of that stuff. I, I'd done all that. But my dad and my mom, they were a little hesitant to let me drive out. Of, you know, I'd never done that before. By myself to just go an hour away, that was a big thing. And so dad <clears throat> one day said, Brett, come out here. We're going to go out to the Gremlin. So I walk out to the Gremlin, and he points at the tire. He says, if you want to go to Nana's, you need to know how to change that tire. Well, when you're 16 years old, you can predict the future, right? I mean, when you're 16, you know everything when you're 16 years old. Mom, Dad, I'm, I'm not going to have a flat tire, right? That's how we talk. And he's like, no, I, I need to know that, that before you get on the road, I need to know that you know how to change a tire if it goes flat. Now, my dad taught me a couple of things. This is before cars got um, way more complicated and computerized and, you know, I, I can't even change the oil on them now because it's just so weird the way they are situated and everything's crammed in there. But back in the day, you could get in and you could find some things. And so he taught me how to change the spark plugs. He, he taught me how to um, change the oil and he wanted to make sure that I knew how to change the tires. Now, why did dad want to know whether or not I knew how to change the tires? Because my dad has been on the side of the road changing a flat tire, and he knows it's possible. He knows that it's something that can happen, and he knows if that ever happens to me, I want him prepared at least to know how to change a tire. But here I am, 16 years old, looking at a perfectly good tire, thinking to myself, I don't need to change this. Why are we wasting time? Why are we doing this? And so the challenge with certain things and certain subjects and topics is, do you wait until a person needs to know, in which case it might be too late to tell them, or do you tell them in advance so it, and, and, and therefore it feels irrelevant to the one that's hearing the discussion? 
Because when I'm standing there and Dad's talking about, about a flat tire, that's irrelevant to me, right? There's no felt need. I don't have a felt need to change that tire. It's a perfectly good tire, Dad. Why do I need to change the tire? And so in this series, for some of you, you're going to say, Brett, I'm so glad you're talking about this because I've had some questions about this, and I'm glad to get some direction on this. And others of you are going to be standing there, and you're going to be looking at a perfectly good tire, and you're going to think to yourself, this is never going to happen. This is not something that we need to talk about. This isn't something that I want to hear. Why am I taking this tire off of this, this perfectly good tire off this car and putting it back on? I don't need to know this. And the relevance of the next three weeks is going to depend really in large part as to how dialed in and tuned in you are to what's going on around the world with Christians and what's beginning to happen on a, on, a, on a small scale, I'm not here to scare you or try, it's not my goal this morning, but we are starting to see certain things relative to Christians that we didn't see 20, 25, 30, 35 years ago. And so these are conversations that we need to have because information creates emotion and a lack of information creates a lack of emotion. Too much information can make you depressed as you look at what's going on around the world. So for the next three weeks, we're going to learn how to change a perfectly good tire. So when it begins to feel like, why are we talking about this? Just remember a 16-year-old Brett looking at a tire, protesting to his father. It's not going to go flat, Dad. Terrorism and religious persecution is escalating worldwide. I went out and found the following statistics on a Christian relief organization website. This is what I found. 300 million Christians are suffering persecution around the world. One in seven Christians is persecuted. In 2014, persecution of Christians happened in 108 countries. By 2017, that number had blossomed to 143 countries. At least 75% of all religiously motivated violence and oppression is suffered by Christians. Christians are the most persecuted religious group in the world. David Curry is the president of an organization called Open Doors. They've been in existence for 65 years, and their job is to basically watch for things like this and report on it and try to help where they can. And David Curry made this statement. He said, the level of exclusion, discrimination, and violence against Christians in some countries has risen to a level akin to ethnic cleansing. He's not talking about overall religious persecution. He's talking specifically about the persecution of followers of Jesus. Now, we don't feel that directly because we live in a different reality. It's, it's, it's something that maybe we're beginning to sense, maybe something we're beginning to feel on the periphery because of what's happening around the world and maybe a little bit in our country. And whether you're a Christian or not, um, at some point, you're going to be forced to decide what you're going to do about fear and anxiety and worry. How secure is secure enough? How many bullets are enough bullets? How, how, how much security, how, what, how much defense is enough defense? How much hiding can you do? Should you withdraw from society altogether? What do you do about your kids? What do you do about public gatherings? You as an individual, 
will have to decide what you are going to do about all of that. In addition to what's going on in the world, there are things that are happening right now in the United States that are starting to signal for us that things are changing. You're starting to see it legislatively a little bit. You see it a little bit in the school systems. Definitely you see it in our culture in general because it's begun to push us away from center as it relates to Christianity. In some forms, even in this country, Christianity is under assault. There's just a sense as Christians that maybe we, where we have been in the center before and we have kind of set the standard for culture in the past, those days are over. And so the question is whether you're talking about persecution globally or whether you're just talking about something that's happening, the erosion of Christianity in, in our own nation, here's the question that we will eventually have to ask, how should we respond? How should we respond? How should a Christian respond to anxiety? How should a Christian respond to a context or an environment where there's actually something to be afraid of and things to worry about? Some of you are going to think, Brett, I'm so glad we're talking about this. Others of you are thinking to yourselves, why are we talking about this today? I don't want to talk about this. To start this morning, I want to go back to the beginning of Christianity. I want to look at the thing that kicked Christianity off. Uh, all of you pretty much know about it. You've either grown up in church and heard about it. You've read about it. You've seen books about it. You've watched movies about it. It's, it's something that we've talked about a lot. We talk about it all the time here. If you were to go to Europe and visit the cathedrals in Europe, you would see depicted everywhere there are murals and frescoes and, and mosaics on the floor that depict the scenes from from the beginning of Christianity. But this event, we, in this event, we see the standard that has been set for all of us who choose to follow Jesus. And the thing is, we tend to forget the standard that's been set for us. We forget because we're Americans. We forget because we live in the land of the free and the home of the brave. And we've never really had to think about what's going to happen if somebody doesn't like the fact that I'm a Christian. We've never had to think about what happens if, if they suddenly don't like us. What happens if they start to take our freedoms away from us? What happens if the day comes and I can't do what I used to do and I can't pray the way I used to pray and they don't want me to talk about Jesus anymore? What happens then? So at the epicenter of the Christian faith is this horrible yet wonderful event that really did set the standard and the tone for Christianity. Fortunately for us, we have not had to lean into this element of Christianity very much because we have been so blessed to live in the nation in which we live. In Europe, for the longest time, they didn't have to worry about religious persecution, but those days are slowly coming to an end. The, the most recent things going on in, in France are a testament to that. Europe doesn't feel nearly as safe as it used to feel. And the day may come when we may all need to lean into this aspect of our faith, and so we're going to talk about it for the next three weeks. Because in the beginning, the founder of our faith, who was Jesus, the one that we pray to, the one that we talk about, the one that you've gathered to worship this morning, the one that you try to emulate every day of your life, and I do too, he was betrayed by a friend. He was unjustly arrested. He was tried and convicted unjustly, illegally. They bribed witnesses and a judge was bribed as well. And he was flogged or tortured. 
Now, he wasn't tortured to get information out of him. When we watch a Bond movie or some kind of movie where somebody's being tortured, it's usually in an effort to extract information from somebody. But that's not what was going on with Jesus. Jesus was flogged. Keep this in mind. Jesus was flogged in order to keep a small group of people happy. That's why he was flogged. In fact, Mark is the, the, the gospel writer who more than likely got most of his information from Peter. Mark said this, wanting to satisfy the crowd. Now think about that. It, it was done to satisfy a crowd. Pilate, who was the governor of Judea, who ultimately oversaw the whole process because the Jewish authorities didn't have the power to put Jesus down, but, but Pilate did. Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged. Pilate is wanting to make some people happy. And so it's Passover, and one of the things that happened at Passover is they always let one criminal go. And so Pilate's got a couple of options here. He can let Jesus go, or he can let Barabbas go. But the crowd wants him to release Barabbas. They want Jesus killed. He really doesn't want to do that, but he's afraid of these people. He's trying to keep the peace. And so he decides to release Barabbas, a person who likely had achieved some kind of fame, almost a, a, like a, um, I don't know how to describe it, but a, a quaint or a, you know, with, with Bonnie and Clyde. There were certain people who loved Bonnie and Clyde. Even though they knew they were outlaws, even though they knew they'd killed people, certain people aided Bonnie and Clyde, didn't want to see him get caught, kind of liked him. And I think Barabbas, in some circles and with some people, probably enjoyed somewhat of a similar kind of thing. I, don't, I wasn't there, I don't know, but that's kind of a guess for me. But he decides in order to satisfy a crowd, he's going to release Barabbas and think about it, he is going to have Jesus flogged to satisfy a crowd. Now if you grew up in church, you've, you've heard the word flogged, if you've read your Bible, you've read across it. Every time I preach and I talk about flogging, I always stop down and I talk about it, and you're probably like, oh, here he goes, here he goes. But it's not just a word that you can skip over, right? It's a, it's a little four-letter word, flog. I mean, how hard is it? You read it, and it's easy to skip over it and to not really stop down and think, oh, that's what happened. But I venture to say, if I started to go into great physiological detail as to what happened to the body of Jesus as it was flogged, some of you would have to leave the room. It would be so gory and so bloody and so nasty. But this word flogging, it appears, and it's really easy for us to just gloss over it. Oh, yeah, by the way, Jesus was flogged. Okay, what's next? No, 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 no. Two centurions were given whips. It started with a, a wooden handle about a foot long. Strips of leather coming out of that attached to the end of the strips of leather, metal and glass and, you know, parts of bone, shards of pottery, anything that would dig or cut or slice. And all that was attached together in one instrument called a cat of nine tails. And they would soak those, that, those leather thongs, those leather straps in water. Why did they do that? Because if they didn't do that, if it was just dry leather, it would hit your skin and bounce off, or it would be slick. But when they wet the leather down, now it wraps around your skin. It sticks. And the whole idea behind a flogging was to rip 
the flesh off of your body, off of your back, off your chest, off your stomach, off the sides of your body. Your hands would be tied, you would be put to a whipping post, all of those tendons, all of those back muscles pulled taut and exposed, ready for the whip, and every time the whip came across, it opened up further what happened to your body. Your back was bleeding, bone gets exposed, tendons, muscles are exposed. Brutal. One stroke at a time. Pilate had done this to satisfy a crowd. And after Jesus is flogged, he's taken back to headquarters where some soldiers decide they want to have a little fun with the king of the Jews. The man that stands at the epicenter of Christianity, the man around whom people all around the world gather, the reason we are here this morning, this man, they decide they're going to have some fun with Jesus, the king of the Jews. And the writer Matthew, who was an eyewitness to all things Jesus, has this to say. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. Now this after they have ripped his back to shreds. They take a robe and they throw it on his back. Can you imagine the pain? Can you imagine the humiliation? Can you just imagine how bad this is? They stripped him, put a scarlet robe on him, and then twisted together a crown of thorns. Now something that that we have to large degree have come to romanticize. I've even seen a crown of thorns used in homes as a decoration. And I'm not putting anybody down. If you've got a crown of thorns somewhere in your house, I'm not putting you down. That's not the point. I'm not trying to make you feel bad. I'm just trying to get you to see that things that were hideous in the first century have evolved and we've come to a place where we've accepted them and we put them in our house and they mean something completely different to us than they did in the first century. You saw somebody fashion a a crown of thorns. I don't know how often that happened. I think probably not a lot. But the idea that somebody pushes that down on your head, I just cannot imagine. They twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand They knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. And if that isn't enough, then Pilate pronounces the maximum sentence, no mercy, crucifixion. Now, I've said this before, but but the Romans did not invent crucifixion. They didn't invent it, but they perfected it. The Romans perfected it. Crucifixion was not designed to kill somebody. It was designed to keep them alive as long as possible and to prolong the pain and the torture as long as possible. That's what the goal of a crucifixion was. Let's keep them alive so they can feel every ounce and every sting and every cut. Let's let's just make sure they feel it all. The idea was to demonstrate such pain and shame and agony that people who walked by and saw crucifixion, which happened because they did it in the public square, they did it where people could see it, you would walk by, you would see a crucifixion, and you would think to yourself, boy, I don't ever want to cross Rome. If Rome tells me to do something, I'm going to do it because I don't want to end up like that. And it was a very effective tool to discourage bad behavior. And again, the detail may force you to leave the room, but a spike is driven through the the wrist of Jesus between his bones, and it fixes him to a piece of wood. Another spike driven through the nails so that he can be put on the cross. 
And I don't know if you know this or not, but you didn't bleed to death on the cross. You, you died of asphyxiation. You died a very slow death where you eventually couldn't breathe anymore. And what would happen is your body would get all crumpled over and sagging, and, and you would use your, your feet what, with what you could to push up and get a little bitty tiny breath. <gasps> and then you would exhale and go back down. And it was just a constant over and over back down over and over. And this went on and on until you eventually expired. And sometimes this took longer than a day to happen. And you suffocated because you just couldn't breathe. And we complain about a mask. And so you would be stretched out, sometimes on scaffolding, sometimes in the pictures and in the movies, you see this this um, depicted as, you know, like they're up in the air, they're maybe three feet up or sometimes really high. I've seen them, you know, pictures where they looked like Jesus was six feet in the air. But the idea of crucifixion was shame. And so these men oftentimes were, were crucified very low to the ground, sometimes four, five, six inches off the ground. Um, this, this had a couple of different ideas that, that went with it. One of them was just a mental torture. This idea that you're, you're going through all this pain, but you're, you can see the ground. It's right there. It's almost as if you could step out of the pain. And they wanted you to have this sensation that, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm going through all this, but I, the ground is right there. If I could just get to that, but you couldn't get to it. And mentally it just played games with you. The other part of it was they wanted people to be able to walk up to you and look you in the eye. And if they wanted to spit in your face, they could spit in your face. If they wanted to cast aspersions on you and your family, if they wanted to accuse you, if they wanted to call you names, they could do it. They could look you right in the eye as they did it. I don't know whether they let them uh, abuse or torture in any way people that were crucified, but if, it's, a, it's a possibility, I suppose. And if somebody just wanted to haul off and punch you in the gut... You were exposed, and they, maybe they could do it. I don't know if they allowed that or not. And so eyewitnesses give us an account of Jesus as he was crucified. Matthew tells us this. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their fists. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. Verse 42, he saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Jesus was not captured trying to escape to Egypt on the run. That's not how they got Jesus. Jesus wasn't caught as he tried to escape out into the, the, the valley of Engedi where there were a bunch of caves and he could hide in one of those caves the way David did when he hid from Saul. That's not how they got Jesus. They didn't catch Jesus trying to get on a boat and cross the Mediterranean Sea to get away from the people who, who sought to do him harm. Your Savior and mine, the Jesus of history, walked into Jerusalem under his own per power, and he did it on purpose. Knowing what they were going to do to him. He came down Main Street in broad daylight. He didn't hide from anybody. Now, part of our problem and I'm not picking on the movies, and I'm not picking on artists and people like that. I understand. But part of our problem is that they are the ones who have kind of cast for us what Jesus looks like. You know, you watch a movie, and you see this movie, and you're like, oh, that's what Jesus looked like. Well, maybe, but probably not. Because, if, you know, if you're, a, if you're in the Renaissance, and you're a Renaissance painter, 
your culture is going to, in some way, tinge or flavor the art that you do. And so if you paint a picture of Jesus, it's likely that it's going to have some Renaissance flavor to it because that's just the culture you live in. That's just all you know. And I've thought about this. If I was going to make a movie about Jesus and the crucifixion, I'm not really sure how I would portray Jesus. I have a feeling that anything I would come up with would not be accurate. But part of the problem is we grew up in church, and, and, you know, if you've been a Christian for a long time, or even if you've embraced Christianity late in your life and you've started to kind of pay attention to, you know, the way Jesus is depicted, in your mind, when you hear the name of Jesus, a certain image comes to your mind because probably some artist somewhere gave you a picture of Jesus, and it, oftentimes it looks like this. But make sure you get it right. Your Savior and mine was bold. And he marched right into the middle of Jerusalem. He walked into the table, into the temple, and he overturned tables, and he ran everybody out of the courtyard. And I'm just here to tell you, I don't think that guy could do that. And Jesus kind of goes crazy. He sees what's going on. He sees that these people are taking advantage of poor people. He sees them selling animals at this exorbitant rate. Here's, here's what happened. You would be required at the Passover to make a sacrifice, okay? So you would go through your herd, you would find the best sheep you had, and you would bring it to the temple courtyard to, to be ready to offer as a sacrifice. And, but you had to have your, your uh, offering inspected. So an inspector would be there, and they would see your sheep, and they would go, oh, no, that's not good enough. But we have one that is good enough, and we'll sell it to you. Well, what do I do with this one? Well, we'll take it. And they would put it in the pen and wait for the next sucker to show up. And we have one to sell you, and they would bring the one that they just took that wasn't good enough for that guy and sell it to the next one. That's what they were doing. That you would have to, there was this exchange rate, right, for your money. And they were, the price to exchange the money was just astronomical they were taking advantage of people and Jesus sees this and he, he kind of he just can't he can't handle what he sees and he go he steps into action and Jesus turns over the tables and he ran the money changers out of the temple by himself and when the religious leaders confronted him they did not say what do you think you're doing that's not what they said they looked at him and they asked this question what authority do you have to do this? Because they're looking at Jesus and they see his countenance and they see his presence and he's got this gaze and this stare. I mean, we're told in the Bible that he fashioned a whip out of cords. So think about it. He stood there and premeditated, I'm about to tear this place up. He's got his face set. He's going to do something about this. And the, the religious leaders saw it. And the question they've got is, by whose authority do you do these things? See, Jesus was bold. He was fearless. He was braver than a badger. He was stronger than steel. And in the end, he was tougher than nails. And then he looks at you and me and he says this. Follow me. Follow me. He actually said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. 
And if you're going to follow Jesus from time to time, you are going to have to say no to you and yes to him. He said they're going to take up their cross daily and follow me. You know what? The cross for most of us these days is jewelry. And again, I'm not trying to make you feel guilty about that. Don't feel bad. That's not, my, that's not what I'm trying to do. I just want you to understand that in the first century, when they saw a cross, it wasn't jewelry. In the first century, when they saw a cross, they didn't even really think about Jesus. When they saw a cross, they saw death. When they saw someone carrying a cross through the city, what they understood was that man is about to die a horrible death. And Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, the day is going to come. There's going to be a season, a set of circumstances where you will have to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me daily. You'll have to follow me when it feels safe. You'll have to follow me when it feels unsafe. You will follow me and have to deny yourself. You'll follow me when you get something out of it, like when you come to church and, you know, the pastor talks about marriage or he talks about prayer or he talks about raising kids and you're like, wow, I really got something out of that. I learned something. You follow him then. You follow him in times when it's not all that helpful and you're not getting that much out of it. And Jesus says, I'm calling you to follow me at all times when it's impractical and when it's practical. When it helps and when it hurts. Follow me when it benefits you. Follow me when it costs you. That's a question for us. Will I follow Jesus if it costs me? And Jesus knew us. And he knew the heart of man. And he understood our need for security. And he understood the, the, the risk averseness of mankind. He understood that we have a tendency to protect ourselves. We, we gravitate to protecting ourselves. He gets that. It's natural, and I think Jesus understood it. So before Jesus was arrested and crucified, he would say things to his disciples like this, do not be afraid of those who kill the body. Don't be afraid of those that kill the body. Don't be afraid of those that kill the body. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy the soul and the body in hell. Fear is going to come. Fear is an emotion. It takes us by surprise, right? It just kind of pops up and, whoop, there it is. And Jesus says, when this happens, just remember there's something to fear. But never allow your fear of someone or a group where the worst thing they can do is hurt your body. Don't be afraid of them. Don't be afraid of that. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. It's easy to say. You're taking notes like, okay, I'm going to get that. Matthew's like, yeah, I got that. And I think Jesus was like, no, Matthew, I don't really think you got that. There's a story that we've all heard. In fact, I looked at this not too long ago in a series. We were talking about something and this story came up but Jesus is with his disciples they're out on the sea these are men that were accustomed to being in boats a lot of these guys owned their own boats had their own fishing businesses they'd been on water before they get in a boat they begin to cross a portion of the sea of Galilee and this <clears throat> savior gets on the boat and he goes to the back of the boat he's going to take a nap he's going to lay down and in my mind I just see Jesus pulling the covers up over his head partially to take a nap, but there's a part of me that also thinks 
He knows what's coming. <laughs> he knows these guys are about to go through a storm that's going to scare them to death. And he's about to see what they're made of. And he lays down, he pulls the covers over, and they set out on the sea, and this awful storm comes up, and it must have been a doozy because these guys have been on the water before. But this one scared them. And they wake Jesus up, and hey, you know, we're going to go down, we're going to drown. And they wake him up, they're terrified, they're panicked, and Jesus says, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? Because we're afraid. And Jesus said, but I told you, don't be afraid of anything that can hurt your body. Don't be afraid of that kind of stuff. Why are you afraid? Because we might drown. And I think Jesus said, I know, but why are you afraid? Have you guys not been listening to me? You guys love it when you're with me and we go into a city and we got, we're, we're enjoying all the popularity and you're with Jesus and everybody wants to talk to you and they want your autograph because you're with this this miracle worker, and this, it's cool to be with Jesus in those kind of circumstances. And you love that. You love it when it's all going in your direction, but when all of a sudden it goes south, then all of a sudden you're not sure following me is worth it. <coughs> Excuse me. Do you remember how this story winds up? Then he got up, rebuked the winds and the waves, and it was completely calm. The men were amazed. And asked, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. When Mark, who wrote this story, and he basically got this story from Peter, when he tells this story, Mark does an interesting thing. He takes the Greek word for fear, and it has a, a, there's, a there's a verb form, and there's a noun form. And what Mark does is he, he does something that you don't see done in the scriptures, I don't think ever, but he does it, he puts those two words together, and what we get is, they feared a great fear. That's how it's written in the Greek. They feared a great fear, which is another way to say their latter fear was greater than their former fear. And it's as if Jesus is saying, look, if you're going to be afraid, fear God. Don't be afraid of something that's just going to touch your body. I mean, if you're going to be afraid, be afraid of something or someone who has some say over what happens to your soul. If you're going to be afraid, fear God. And in the meantime, follow me. Now, for some of us, this is extremely relevant today. For others, you're thinking, Brett, this is a perfectly good tire. <laughs> Why are we changing this? This is a perfectly good tire. We don't need to talk about this. I get it. Because some of you, this is, what, this is your attitude today. Well, things are going good for me, Brett. I prayed for a new girlfriend and I got one. Hopefully you were single when you prayed that prayer. You know, I prayed for a new job and I got one. Brett, things for me are going great. Okay, wonderful. Stow this away, log this away for a time when things aren't so wonderful because it won't always be wonderful. Because here's the unavoidable reality. Uncertainty is unavoidable. Uncertainty is for certain. The only thing for certain in life is the uncertainty that's going to come in life. Here's the message for anybody who would choose to follow Jesus. Uncertainty is unavoidable. Fearful is optional. Fear isn't optional. It comes, it presents itself, and we have no control over when fear props up. But living a fearful life, submitting to the fear, that's a choice. 
It's always optional. And Jesus proved it in his life, and he proved it in his death. And that's really, at the end of the day, when you start thinking about it, that's why we're here this morning. It wasn't just Jesus. The Apostle Paul wrote, in, he wrote half the New Testament. He was actually stoned at one point, and they left him for dead. They took him outside the city. They threw rocks at him until he's bloodied and beaten, and Lord knows how many bones in his body are broken, and they leave him to die. They actually, what they really think is that they just left him out there so that the wild animals would come and rip him apart and eat him. That's, what, that's really what they were doing. And Paul somehow comes to, and he gets up, and he gets himself together enough, and he makes his way back to his people. And when he gets back to his people... You know, and he starts talking to God. He doesn't say, God, I've done my job. I got stoned. They threw rocks at me, almost killed me. I'm done. That's not what Paul says. He starts talking about what's next. He was fearless because he had learned that he didn't need to be afraid of what they could do to his body. Our fear is focused on the one who can control the destination of our soul. Not what somebody can do to our body. In one of the most emotional scenes that you will find in the New Testament in Acts chapter 21, he's with a group of people who love him. And they are begging Paul not to go back to Jerusalem. Don't go back. Don't go back. If you go back, they're going to arrest you and they're going to kill you. We will never see you again. Don't go, Paul, don't go back. And Paul says with a smile on his face, my friends, this is what God has called me to do. And I realize I may never see your faces again. You're right. What awaits me in Jerusalem is not a good thing. But I'm going anyway. What kind of man is that? What kind of courage is that? It's the courage that is born of an understanding that we need not fear anything or anyone that can only touch the body and not the soul. Paul goes to Jerusalem. He's arrested. He declares that he's a Roman citizen. They don't know what to do with him, so they send him off to Rome. Nero's Rome. Nero was nuts. He gets to Rome, and he waits forever for his trial and his sentence to come through. He is eventually, the sentence comes through, and he is to be executed. They execute him in Rome. And during that time in prison, when he's in Rome, Paul writes prolifically. And much of the New Testament that you pick up and read, maybe every day of your life, Paul wrote those words while he was in prison, waiting to die. And today... There is no more temple, there is no more Roman Empire, but the words of Paul that have been translated for us into hundreds of languages are read every single week in church and by many of you every single day of your life. As the result of a man who understood there is no need to be afraid of anything that all it can do is hurt my body. After Jesus and Paul were killed, Christians went through intense persecution they were killed by Rome, specifically by Nero. There was a doctor named Claudius Galenus. He was a, a Roman pagan doctor. He did not follow Jesus. And one of his responsibilities was when they would have games, when they would feed the Christians to the lions, and these beasts would come out and rip Christians' bodies to shreds, they would be 
still alive. You weren't allowed to touch a dead body in Rome unless you were going to bury it, but um, Claudius Galenus was allowed to inspect these bodies that were still living. They were just minutes from dying. And so he would go out onto the arena floor and he, was, he would examine these bodies and he would look at all these Christians who'd been ripped apart because he was trying to learn about the body. And he wrote about some of what he saw and some of that literature has survived antiquity and here's what he said about Christians. Claudius Galenus a, a pagan Roman doctor, this is what he said about Christians. For fearlessness of death and the hereafter is something we witness in them every day. They lived and were not overwhelmed by fear. Every time you pick up an English translation of the Bible, you have a man named William Tyndale to thank for that. William Tyndale translated the Bible from Hebrew and Greek into English. Uh, you know, I love the movie Braveheart. Braveheart's a great movie, and William Wallace was a bad man, but he didn't have anything on William Tyndale. The religious leaders in Tyndale's day did not like Tyndale because Tyndale wanted to translate the Bible so that everybody could read it. And if you're the only one that can read the Bible and nobody else knows what it says, you can kind of control people and what they know and what they think, right? So they didn't want the Bible translated for everybody. Tyndale comes along and says, no, everybody should be able to read it. He was an outlaw. They hated him. They hated him so much that they strangled him in public and then burned his body. He was fearless because he knew all they can do is kill me. They have no control over my soul. Two years later, he was, after his uh, public execution, the king, King Henry, declared the English Bible the official Bible of England, which brings me to three questions that I want to ask you this morning to sum up our time together. Here they are. Is our version of Christianity worth all that? I mean, all that I just talked about with Jesus and what happened with Paul, what happened with William Tyndale, what happened with the, the people in the, in the arena, is our version of Christianity worth what they went through? Or is our version of Christianity reduced to, Lord, please help me find my car keys? Lord, I, I would, help me, it's raining, and it's, I, I just need a parking place up front. Please tell me that we depend on Jesus for more than that. <laughs> Please tell me that our faith goes deeper than just, God, I hope she goes out with me this week. Question number two, is your version of Christianity worth dying for? The probability of you dying for Jesus is very slim. Very slim. Probably none of us in the room will ever bleed for Jesus. But what if? What if they walked in here today and put a gun to your head and said, believe or don't believe, and the answer depends on whether you live or die? How are you doing with that? Is our Christianity, is our version of Christianity worth dying for? See, in our world today, there are Christians that are dying for a version of Christianity that looked an awful lot like that that was in the first century and second century of Jerusalem. 
Do we deny ourselves and do we take up our cross to follow Jesus the way they did? Question number three, is the way we live worth the price that the martyrs paid? It's kind of another way to say what I've already asked. Peter and Paul and Jesus and the Christians in places like Iraq and Syria and Pakistan and Kenya, if they could look at us in our version of Christianity, would they say it's worth it? And I'm not trying to make us, please know, I'm not trying to send you out of here going, man, he really kicked our tail today. I feel awful. That's not my goal. That is not my goal. My goal is simply to kind of smack my hands together to get your attention to think about these questions. And how is my faith? And is it strong? And am I ready to be put on an anvil? Am I ready to go through the kind of things that other Christians in other eras have gone through? How would I hold up? And I'm just trying to wake us up a little bit. It's better to know how to change the tire before you're on the side of the road, in the dark, in the rain, and not have a clue what you're doing and not have a plan. Right? So here we are. We're standing in front of a perfectly good tire, and the question is, Are we going to give ourselves to changing it, or are we going to fight it? So here's the thing. When fear starts to whisper in your ear, I want you to whisper back, Oh, fear. Not today, because I followed Jesus. And that dude marched right into Jerusalem in broad daylight, knowing full well what they were going to do to him. And I follow him. And you can take my body, but you cannot touch my soul. That is his. And I'm a follower of Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we're blessed in this country. We, we, we persecution, I mean, we shouldn't even say words like that in our country. We, we're so spoiled. But Lord, what if? What if things change? And, you know, for the time being, things are great, but who knows what happens 20, 30, 50 years from now? Who knows where we might be? I know this. I know that Christians aren't viewed today the way they were 30 or 40 years ago. They aren't given the same respect. Um, we're, We're... it's light persecution. They call us names. They make fun of us. Oh, poor us. But God, it could get worse one day. It could come to a point one day where for us to declare that we follow Jesus could mean that we lose a life. And the question before us this morning is, how would we do with that? And does it scare us to think about that? Absolutely, it scares us. We, you, you understand, we're risk averse. We, don't, we want to protect us. Father, I pray that we would hear the words of our Savior saying, don't be afraid of them. All they can do is hurt your body. You fear the Lord. So Lord, this morning, my my goal hasn't been to make these people feel guilty or make them feel bad. My goal has just been to wake them up a little bit, make them think. And so Father, I depend on you to now come behind what I've said and really do the work you're the one that knows exactly what they need to process and how they need to think about things. And so, Father, we collectively 
right now just thank you for a Savior who was tougher than nails. And he showed us the way. May we be worthy. Pray it in Jesus' name.